Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August the 26th, 2022, and this is episode 3154 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, 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 so it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show, and I've got a great lineup of guests for you today. Here's what I've got on the docket. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we'll hear from all three of the guys over there, Dr. Paul himself, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini, on the fact that government is supposed to protect liberty rather than destroy it. Well, good luck with that, Dr. Paul. Dan McAdams on, don't forget what Fauci has done. Uh, We're going to talk about this next week. I'm going to have to do an episode next week. Dedicated to the COVIDs, where the live stream will not take place on ScrewTube because they will put me in YouTube prison for 30 days this time and really threaten to take away my account if I get another strike, before it runs out anyway. Uh, Chris Rossini will talk about how inver- interventions and regulations versus stock ownership are the actual problems with our Congress and being involved in the stock market. And John Pugliano will say, can we actually capitalize? On this inflation reduction, green energy, BS. I mean, they're going to do it. So are there certain sectors or places that we should invest? Uh, not because we believe in it, but because we believe it will be profitable. Sean Mills will talk about integrating solar into an existing house when you miss the opportunity to install it during the build. So this guy built his own house, didn't think solar made sense. Now he's just about done and thinking, ah, there's some incentives and some stuff here, and maybe it would make sense to do it now. Tim, the tool man cook, has a grab bag of handyman questions on a whole bunch of different stuff. Doc Bones will talk about how medical history applies to off-grid medicine. You know, you're dealing with a doctor and take your medical history, and we think of, like, uh, grid-down medicine as not being that type of organized thing, but it, it really should be, especially in a group that you've already decided who has what roles in. Uh, Doc will talk about that and how to do it right. Jessica Dixie Mills will talk about staying motivated in the end stages of a through hike. And when I when I listened to this one, there was just one little thing I picked up on from the guy asking the question that I want to comment on as well. I think everything Dixie says is great, but I want him to stay motivated, but I also want him to not feel bad about this little thing that came up. And when it comes up, it'll make sense. Then Nick Ferguson will say talk ask her a question. She'd be concerned about bucking varieties with comfrey. This guy's on. Do I, if I put too many varieties of comfrey, will I get too much cross pollination? Nick will answer this, and I got a little add on for that. And then I was looking for something to talk about a little bit easier today after yesterday. Yesterday I was completely on fire by the end of the episode, and I didn't want to rehash any of that stuff, but I also did want to do something meaningful to end the week on. I found this quote by Albert Einstein. I'll prime the pump with it right now, and we'll come back to it when I do my anchor segment. And it is. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I want to talk about how that applies to people that purport to be experts on the TV set. And the difference between explaining something simply versus dumbing it down. And the difference between being a teacher or a talker. So we're going to get to that at the end. Before we do that, 
I want to let you guys know I, meant, I forgot to cover something yesterday. I read the Boostergrams, but I left a comment that was on the blog off that I really wanted to read. I got distracted. Um, this came in on the, the, the podcast I did on Wednesday with uh, Chuck Marone from uh, small town, strongtowns.org. Um, this is what the, the commenter said. The commenter's name was John, and he said, Great interview. I've been a member of both the Member Support Brigade and Strong Towns for longer than I can remember. I've lived in Memphis for 12 years now, and I can confirm the city and county governments are a mess. But I have tomatoes in my front yard and chickens in my backyard. One neighbor grows commercial greens in his front yard. There's a half-acre gorilla garden where projects used to be. We made we trade fermented items and produce with our neighbors all the time. It's frustratingly chaotic at times, but it has a lot of opportunity for those willing to work. This was my response to this, and it's, it's exactly how I felt when I responded to it. I said, this is a home run, make my day comment, so much in it. One, crossover with guests. Two, commenter confirming guests. Three, commenter taking action in a real way. Four, good news in the comment from neighbors of commenter. Five, bartering comment. Six, small business enterprise in comment. Seven, defying government successfully in comment. Seven, urban garden in comment. Urban guerrilla garden in comment. All in about 350 words. The only way this comment could be better is if today was Friday And OG, and I didn't do it on purpose, but OG, I forgot to read it on Thursday. So I get to, at least I get to read it on Friday to you guys anyway. Here's a secret. It's still Thursday. Yeah, I'm doubling up on Thursday. I'm trying to take Friday off. I don't know if I get it all done, but I'm going to try to spend some time with the grandkids and the wife tomorrow. With that, let's dig on into it. Start out with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. I have been amazed these last couple of years how well the enemy was able to infiltrate every system that we have. It really is incestuous and very, very dangerous and not easy to cancel out. You know, we talk about cleaning up the Congress, and we should, and the more we do and the more we point out what they're doing, I think the better, because I can't say you shouldn't do it because I tried it, and who knows whether it did any good or not, only time will tell. We have have to get to the point of what what should what should you reject and that is using force people have their own lives they're born with natural rights they have a responsibility to take care of their families but they uh, they can do whatever they want except for no force against another person you can't deny liberty to somebody else and then one thing that you might say well Well, at least, at least you have to have a government. If somebody's going down the street shooting and killing everybody, don't you have to have, you know, authority, you, you know, to calm the person down or take care of the person who's denying liberty to others? Well, if it were limited to that, and uh, most people, and I, I agree with that too, that you should, you should deal with, with that. But how does it end? Is it going to end by getting 10 or 15 better people in the Congress this term, that'll help because they'll be sending out a message. But the people's attitudes have to change. They have to decide what they want. But that's where I think we're making some progress. 
I, I really do believe there's a lot more people. I've been, you know, working at this since the early 1970s when I got interested in monetary policy and economics uh, back in the early 70s. And uh, I'll tell you what, there's a lot more people now that talk about the Federal Reserve in a, in a healthy manner and uh, that there, are, there is such a thing as a higher law and natural law and natural rights that come not from the government, but they come when we're born. And that uh, protecting those rights should be the significant uh, issue that we deal with. And people have to st- hopefully <laughs> stop believing in the experts because they don't seem to know anything. <laughs> right. Well, here's a real scientist, and I found this great couple of tweets from our good friend Thomas Massey. And if uh, you'll indulge me, Dr. Paul, I just want to read them because he captures it perfectly. Here's the first one from Massey. Science didn't evolve... Fauci ignored science. He denied the existence of natural immunity. He spoke of droplets to avoid acknowledging the size of the virus was too small to be stopped by the filters of loose-fitting cloth masks. Let's do the next one. This is a real indictment. The vaccine trials were designed not to show that the vaccines didn't prevent infection or spread, but he spoke as if they did. He ignored harm caused by locking down people, delayed cancer screenings, untreated diabetes, unfilled prescriptions, mental health, suicides, etc. He ignored and still ignores the side effects of the novel mRNA vaccines. The policies he advanced never properly acknowledged that the elderly had exponentially more risk than children. He cared not about the stunted social and educational development of children. The last one, he downplayed early treatments and promoted late-stage expensive pharmaceuticals while ignoring their side effects. And this is it, Dr. Paul. Fauci isn't science. He's a snake oil salesman (laughs) trying to quietly ride his wagon out of town before the people hold him accountable for his fraud. Wow. Corporatism uh, is an offshoot of socialism. It was actually popularized by a very hardcore socialist, Benito Mussolini. And uh, he called it fascism, economic fascism. And that is the marriage of power, which is government, and money, which is corporations. And Mussolini was very, very popular. He was popular with FDR, with Churchill. With the, you know, they loved this guy. I think he was on Time magazine like eight times, you know, because communism cannot work. You can't have one property owner because then you have no market prices and you don't know what to do and everybody starves. So, but if you have a highly, highly regulated marketplace, now you're onto something and you can, just like the communists, rip everybody off. And that's what we have today. We have a corporatist system where the government and corporations rip us off repeatedly. And, uh, but the people have to support it. And that's where the media comes in. They pump out propaganda with scientific precision from every single direction, and the people end up, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, do this, do that, do that. And then at the end, it's just, you're just in regret. And today we see, or yesterday we see the CDC, oh, they botched it. You know, afterwards it's always regret, but the robbery has already taken place. It's too late. There is a way out of this corporatist system. Uh, first off, like communism, it cannot uh, succeed. The, the the difference is it lasts longer. Communism collapses faster uh, because it's so irrational. There's at least a tinge of rationality in this corporatist system, and so it bleeds us uh, slower. And uh, it's been called a vampire economy because it slowly bleeds you to death. 
And that's why it's, you know, taking longer uh, than the, like the Soviet system. Uh, but the, the people in their minds have to be ready uh, with new ideas. And those new ideas are the exact opposite of what we have. If we have the biggest government in history, we need limited government. If we have fiat money, we need sound money. And if we have hyper-regulated markets, we need free markets. You know? I just want to say, last weekend, Ron Paul had a birthday. Happy birthday, Dr. Paul. And listening to that segment, I, I liked everything all three of the guys had to say, but I want to hone in on the one thing that was the most impactful to me out of those three, uh, three guys' segments. Uh, Dr. Paul hammering again on the one thing, the one thing that you need to not do is use force, that people have natural innate rights, and we should not be using force on peaceful people, the end, infinity. Because Dr. Paul, for all those that call him a libertarian, is in essence a pure libertarian, i.e. an anarchist. And if you don't think an anarchist can serve in government, then you've not met Dr. Paul and understood what the word anarchist means. So Dr. Paul is a pragmatic anarchist. That's why he served in the House for over 20 years, because he knew that he could only do so much and he'd do what he can. But the belief that it is wrong to use force on a peaceful individual to compel them to either give you their property or act against their will is wrong is what makes one an anarchist. And when I wish Dr. Paul a happy birthday on Twitter uh, last weekend, I said, Dr. Paul is the hero America needs, but clearly not the hero America deserves, because he has been outright, overall, rejected by the American people who would prefer to have force used on their neighbors than to not have force used upon themselves. This is the sadomasochist nature of modern man in America today. Even though people don't like force being applied to them, they'll tolerate it in order to have force by proxy applied to their neighbor to get what they want their way sometimes. We live in a mentally sick society, and it is not the price we pay for a civilized society. We don't have to live this way, but we will until enough people wake up to the realization that it is wrong to use force on peaceful people to compel them to act against their will or to deprive them of their property. That anything that is truly necessary can and should be done in a voluntary way. Gee, Aren't we anarchists? Aren't we libertarians? Aren't we anarcho-capitalists just the most violent people? Oh, wait a minute. It's them that's violent. Anyway, let's move along. Let's move along. One of the things they did with their violence and force was rush through a thing called the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, we know what that means. Whatever the government says, it means the opposite. So it's the Inflation Increasing Act. That's what it is. It's going to drive the prices up of things. We all know that. But one of the ways that they're spending money, because you don't just spend three-quarters of a trillion dollars on nothing. The government can, sort of, but in the end they do it on something. They spend a lot of it on green energy and shit like that. At least companies that purport to do green energy. In fact, one, I believe, is that's going to get a bunch of money out of this is a company that went bankrupt when it got a bunch of money under Obama's stimulus. And so and they've reorganized the company, they've got more money. Well, are any of these companies, uh, let's not invest in the one that went bankrupt, but is there any place or sector or segment or company or group of companies or mutual fund or anything like that, that if all this money is going to get dumped into it, it might see some real upside and it might be worth looking at investing in? That question came in to me, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. 
John Pugliano, help us out with this one, bro. Hello, TSP. Our question today is about investing and profiting from all the government spending supporting green energy. This question was submitted by Aaron. Aaron's asking about how to maybe profit from all the government spending boondoggle that we're seeing around renewable energy. And a lot of this has been tied to the Inflation Reduction Act, which we all know has little to nothing to do with reducing inflation. So quickly on this, Aaron, I'll throw out some ideas to you, but let me also highlight here that I always advise against chasing the headlines or trying to jump in on the next big fad or trend. So while a lot of that stuff has probably gotten a pop here lately, I would be cautious of getting in at this point and see if when some of this irrational exuberance wears off, if those prices don't come down to a more reasonable level. And the problem with that is that so many of these stocks that are in that genre are way overvalued. And the reason for that is that many of them have little to no profits. And unless you're into really speculative trading, then I would highly recommend that you avoid companies that have little to no profits. The other thing to consider is that all this green energy spending, it's really not as much as everybody's hyping it up to be. I think the number is something like $369 billion, but that's split up over like 10 years. And it's watered down across so many different areas, you know, not only in specific applications like electric vehicles or solar panels, but also in upgrading windows and attic insulation and a whole cornucopia of giveaways where individual taxpayers can get tax credits. Now, again, I know that $369 billion sounds like a big number, but think about what we've seen over the last two and a half years of the pandemic, where every single month the Federal Reserve has been printing and creating out of thin air $120 billion, and that's every month. So really, this whole spending program is really equivalent to only about three months of quantitative easing. And when you look at a company like Apple that, you know, last time I checked, they had over $200 billion in cash on their balance sheet. So I just throw out there the idea that a private company like Apple, over the long run, would probably be much better at getting a return on investment of their $200 billion in cash than any other one single company or industry is going to receive as they siphon off their percentage of this $369 billion in green energy spending. The other thing to keep in mind with government programs is that they're subject to change, and you can see that by looking no farther than what's going on in Germany right now. They're back to burning coal. They're not planning on getting rid of the internal combustion engine by 2035. They're keeping at least three nuclear power plants up and running. And they virtually eliminated any type of zoning or environmental impact statements that would stop them from immediately constructing several receiving liquid natural gas terminals. So be aware that government policy is constantly changing and very fickle. And also don't forget that government policies oftentimes fail. And you can look at the high-handed green agendas that came in with the Biden administration and at the same time, the number one performing asset class during Biden's time in office is oil and fossil fuel companies. So don't ever underestimate the inefficiency of government. Ah, but I digress. So to directly answer your question, you know, how do we all get some money out of this boondoggle? Well, definitely, if you're in the market for one of these items that's favored under green spending, so that might be like upgrading your furnace to a heat pump, or upgrading your clothes dryer or your hot water tank or putting new windows in your house or a new electric panel or somehow upgrading the wiring in your house. You know, if you need that product or service, 
certainly look in to some of these tax advantages that are going to be applied in those areas, but make sure you do the math. Just make sure you're running the numbers and you understand the total commitment that you're investing by buying into this new green technology and make sure that there's a viable return on investment. Don't simply buy something because you're going to get some kind of a tax credit. Now, from a practical side of this, I think anybody that's engaged in the trades and specifically in doing these home improvements and upgrading electrical systems will benefit from these trends and going more green energy because regardless of what the government does with spending, our society and culture and industry is already moving that way anyways because it is more long-term effective and efficient. So if you're a young person, I would highly advise you to look at careers and educations that favor the digitization and the electrification of our economy. That's a long-term trend regardless of what the government does or doesn't do. So things like software engineers and specifically cybersecurity experts, and then on the nuts and bolts side, electrical engineers, journeyman electrician, those are now, and I believe, will remain in the future in demand and offering above-average compensation. From an individual stock perspective, you know, there's all the normal players in electric vehicles like Tesla or Rivian, but I'd encourage you to think outside the box. Remember that a lot of this government spending by design is going to be favored to special interest groups. One of those groups would obviously be the United Auto Workers. So I would think that companies like GM and Ford over the long run are going to offer better entry points into the electric vehicle market, given where valuations are if you compare something like General Motors to Tesla. Now, a lot of people are going to be naturally thinking about the metals and the elements that go into batteries. So lithium, cobalt, there's a number of them. I personally invest in lithium through an ETF with the ticker symbol LIT. And I avoid all the exotic and the specific metal investing in things like cobalt. And I would rather take a broader approach by investing in big, large, profitable miners. Maybe companies like Rio Tinto or Freeport McMoran. And a reason for that is that these companies have large exposure to mining in general and specifically to copper and any type of digitization or electrification of the economy is going to involve copper. Something else to consider is that all these minerals and metals have to be dug up out of the ground and processed. And so you're going to have to rely on good old-fashioned technology like heavy equipment manufacturers, and a company like Caterpillar or Cummings Diesel come to mind. As far as batteries themselves, I prefer to be conservative and stick with companies that have long-term track records in that market. And so, again, a company that comes to mind there would be Panasonic. If you want to invest directly in wind energy, I think one of the most leading-edge global companies out there is Vestas. Again, their high valuation reflects that. And it may make sense to, again, look broadly across the industry, and rather than just investing in a turbine manufacturing company, perhaps you should look at the materials that go into those turbines, and that would be from a composite company like TPI. And as far as solar energy, a couple of the big dominant companies that come to mind there are First Solar and Sun Power, and then names that I think are favored in both wind and solar and are bigger diversified conglomerates are companies like Siemen and General Electric. There are also a number of smaller and especially mid-sized companies that are high quality, they're extremely profitable, they have very reasonable valuations, 
I'd encourage you to look at that sector. A name that comes to mind and a stock that's in my portfolio is Method Electronics. And again, thinking broadly and thinking about all these tax credits that are going to be issued to individual homeowners for upgrading their homes and their appliances, well, a simple way to take advantage of that may be just investing in a company like Home Depot. Well, hey, I'm out of time. As always, thanks for your questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Good stuff from John. Just um, on the irrational exuberance part at the beginning and being careful about jumping on something that's already experienced the uptick, it just makes me think of one of the oldest sayings in investing. Buy the rumor, sell the news. Buy the rumor and sell the news. In other words, when the thing's being talked about but has yet to be confirmed, if you can confirm it before it's confirmed, that's when you buy. And when the news pops that it's real and everybody else buys, that's when you dump. So that's a trader's philosophy, but even if you're not a trader, even if you're a buy-and-hold type or you're a buy-and-get-out-of-the-way-of-a-coming-storm type, so it's occasionally we, we liquidate because we know the bad is coming, and then we create capital to have opportunity to buy with. Even if you're in either of those camps, there is something to be learned from the trader's philosophy. And so even though we might not be selling a lot, we don't buy the news. We buy the rumor or we buy the long-term value. And the big thing to take away from that is often the worst time to buy is right after the good news came out because the irrational exuberance has created an artificial short-term pop in price that is not correlated to value. That's my addition to that one. Moving on from there, let's go to our next one today. Uh, we have one now from Sean Mills. Uh, on installing solar into the house that's already built, and we really missed the opportunity during the build to plan for solar. And it's not as big a deal as some people would think. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And today I've got a question from David on integrating solar into an existing house. Uh, so David says, I have a question about integrating solar to an existing house for Sean Mills. Can you recommend an inverter slash charge controller for a whole house system? I'm almost done building my own house. It has been an 18-month process, but I have completely built my own 1,800-square-foot house by myself. That's awesome, David. Super awesome. Um, I tell everyone I have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but as I have done all the work myself, I am familiar with how it is set up. When I built the house, I did the math for solar, and, did, and uh, I did the math rather, and solar did not seem to be cost-effective as the power company ran power to the house for zero cost for a residential customer. Yeah, I'm with you 100% there, David. Um, you know, it's not cost-effective if, if the other option's free. Um, I configured the house to run on a backup generator by separating circuits as well as utilizing an indoor and outdoor panel. The first winter, power was out for three weeks, and this last winter for two weeks. I was planning on using a 6,000 to 8,000-watt generator to run essential items, but not the whole house. Due to the duration of outages and rising fuel costs, I have begun to, begun to consider utilizing solar. My thoughts are to start with a whole house inverter, charger, a small amount of battery storage, and some solar panels. This would allow me to utilize the existing grid system and begin to shave with the end goal of continuing to build the system out over time to become self-sufficient. 
Is this possible or am I missing something? I have included a diagram of my current setup and what I'm envisioning. Thank you for your time, David. Yeah, David, uh, so I'm looking at your diagram here. Um, no problems there. The system will definitely work. Uh, the reality is you probably want to start off with a Solark, S-O-L-A-R-K, inverter. This and the GrowWatt, G-R-O-W-A-T-T, are the only ones I know of that are true hybrid inverters. Um, Solarks are a little bit bigger and can handle a little bit more throughput, so I normally spec those. Now, this inverter will take inputs from batteries, generators, the grid, and PV arrays, all in separate inputs, and you can program it to handle energy however you want. The inverter will prevent islanding, so you can use it when the grid is off. And if your generator is capable, you can even use an automatic generator start. So, for example, you could have this system run off of solar, then grid, and keep the batteries at 100% during normal use, so you're only taking off the grid what you actually need. Then if the grid is down, you can have it cut the generator on when the depth of discharge on the battery gets to whatever your set point is. So let's say, for example, uh, you're running lithium iron phosphate batteries, and you're like, okay, I'll take those all the way down to 80% depth of discharge, no problem. Um, you can actually program the inverter. When the batteries hit that depth of discharge, it cranks on the generator, sends um, AC to the house, and the rest of it into your batteries. Um, so that this, these true hybrid inverters that have just come out the last couple years um, do exactly what you're talking about. Now, they are a little bit pricey, but they're all-in-one units. So um, you could go with a couple smaller units, um, you know, go with like a 3,000-watt unit and then add another 3,000-watt unit later. You could go straight to the Solark 12K, which is like an 8,000-watt inverter, uh, but it's going to do everything you need. Um, or you could go with something in the middle, like a 6K, and say, okay, well, if I need more of either solar or batteries later, I can always add more inverters and just put them in series, and I have no problem. Um, there is a minimum input requirement for all of these inverters, so you're going to have to take a look at what that is to make sure you have enough photovoltaic input and enough battery input um, to meet those minimum requirements. Most of these, like the GrowWatt, I think, you know, six panels and one uh, lithium iron phosphate 48 volt battery will do the job. Um, but it's something to consider if you're gonna be building the system out over time. Um, I definitely go with the lithium iron phosphate batteries because that's gonna allow you to add more batteries to the system later. Each battery should have its own BMS or battery management system, uh, which means you don't run into the problems that you do with um, lead where all your cells kind of need to be the same age in order for the system to get the maximum amount of life out of it. So uh, with that being said, like I said, your um, your system as you have it drawn out is will work. Uh, you just need the right components. I would start with that Solark and go from there. Good luck to you, David, and send any uh, follow-up questions in. I'll get those answered as well. Next up, we have a grab bag of questions for Tim Toolman Cook on a whole great variety of stuff. Tim, take it away. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here coming back at you from the workshop to answer some more questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. i got a grab bag of questions for you. We're going to try to knock four out. We'll see what happens. Number one, Melody from Telegram said, Hey, Tim, I got a question regarding the GoV products and the freezer alarms. I have several of the GoV products, and I can use them all with the same app. My problem is with the freezer sensors, they're all only rated to minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So when they go below that, it alerts me. So basically, I'm getting alerted all the time. I can't seem to find a way to set it to alerting me only if it's a high temp, no low temp. Okay, Melody. And for anybody else out there, if you haven't found these GoV freezer alarms, I love them. They're not technically called freezer alarms because they don't recommend them being used in the freezer. I've been using mine for two years now, and they have held up great. They're not perfect, but what I can tell you is they are 1,000 times better than traditional freezer alarms. They have three AA batteries, they run on Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and they're great. Now, I've only been able to find the app is the bad side of these products. I've been able to find a workaround in there, and what you need to do is go into each individual unit, and in there, there is a calibration where you can offset the temperature. And for me, my freezer only needs to be two or three degrees different than what the app calls for, and it stops giving me the alerts all the time. That's the only workaround I have found. I have contacted the company a bunch of times. They haven't helped me with it. So it's a small price to pay. I tend to use these more for, hey, every two or three days, I log in to check my temperatures on my freezer. If I'm away, it allows me to do that. But they're so much more reliable and better than traditional freezer alarms. Question two, Natalie says, Tim or anyone, have you ever had any experience with fireplace inserts? I have a wood-burning fireplace. It's pretty, but not efficient. I have a lot of wood I can use off my own property. I'd like to cut down on heating costs. Um, Should I, you know, how how expensive are they going to be and are inserts worth it? Well, I used to sell inserts at Home Hardware all the time. And if you want a way to absolutely waste wood, keep burning it in an open, old-style fireplace. Those were the least efficient. They're pretty. They look good. But they tended to send almost all of the heat straight up the chimney. So for people who don't know what an insert is, it's basically a wood stove that's built in the shape of a fireplace so that you can then slide it into an existing fireplace and have a highly efficient wood-burning appliance with the look and enjoyment of a fireplace. So yes, are they worth it? I think absolutely, because basically you're taking something that was just for looks and turning it into something that could actually cut down on your heating bills and work really well in a you know grid-down, power-down situation. They are more expensive than a normal wood stove, you know, do you want to install them yourselves? I don't know. I would normally hire somebody to do that, make sure it's going to fit properly, and then they'll put trim on it, make sure you have a nice chimney that it runs through. But are wood-burning inserts a good idea? Absolutely. They improve an existing fireplace immensely. Next one comes from MH over on YouTube, and they said, how do you keep the battery charged on a trickle charger? Uh, this is where I responded. I said, uh, basically, how do you keep the battery charged is what they asked. And I said, with a trickle charger. <laughs> so for some reason, I don't know if they're being obstinate or just didn't understand, but they said, what if I don't want to install a trickle charger myself? So first off, I'm thinking maybe it was because they were nervous or not comfortable with them, but you can permanently install a trickle charger using a screwdriver. It takes two or three minutes. Take out the two screws on your generator charging Um, you know, battery, put the two little loops in, connect them, and you are done. But if that's not what you want to do, the next best thing would be to make sure you run your generator every so often and go out and periodically charge it with a battery charger once a month. Some generators have a recharging circuit built in. So if you run it long enough, you will get a fully charged battery anyway. But I just don't see any reason why not to buy yourself a $15 or $20 trickle charger and permanently install it on your generator's battery. I hope that helps. 
Uh, last question comes from another user over on YouTube, and they said, what would be the proper care and use of a generator if I buy it and I never need it? I'm thinking about picking this up as part of my preparation toolkit, but in the last 10 years, I've never needed one, unless maybe for one day camping, but I'm not sure about the weight of the generator. I don't know, but I just want to know, what, what do you think? What is the proper use and care for something I'm never going to use? Well, I can promise you this, that the generator you don't want to have is the generator that you buy and keep in a box and never use it. The reason is twofold. Number one, if you don't run it, you're not going to know if there's any problems. The worst thing you can do with a generator is just sit it around and not use it whatsoever. Number two, you're never going to learn the starting procedure. You know, if, if you are looking to build a preparation toolkit, skills are as important or more important than the supplies. Go out and buy yourself a generator. Never use it. You're not going to know. If, if you can't run it when you're not stressed and you're in an unstressful situation, how are you ever going to expect to be able to start it properly and run your house on it in the event that you do have a power outage, which is probably going to be either in the middle of the night or in really crappy weather. So the worst thing you can do is just sit your generator around and never let it run. You know, even if you're not using it a lot, change the oil once a year, hook up a trickle charger on it so that your electric push button start will work and then run the thing every two to three months. That way, you know, it's going to run. It's in tip top condition. You know, nothing's broken on it and you know how to start it when you need it. So I hope that helps, guys. You want to know more about what I'm up to, run to toolmantim.co. Check that out. i got a ton of products over there I recommend. Or come by the workshop at the uh, YouTube channel. We have the live podcast every Thursday, Saturday, Sunday evening, 7 o'clock Mountain Time. And I'm in the process of launching the Tactical Patch of the Month Club. So if you want to come by, check that out. There'll be a new patch design every single month that'll come directly to your doorstep. So come by, check that out. And guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I'm guessing the concern about the trickle charger has a potential anyway to go back to the days that Stephen Harris was still part of the Survival Podcast. There's people that have asked about whatever happened to Steve, and I'll just say that Steve said things to people long enough, and I got tired of it. And that's all I want to say, because I don't want to be nasty about it. But... Steve was very set in his ways. He was a very smart guy, an engineer, worked in the automotive industry, and there were times that Steve struggled to keep up with changes in reality. So old trickle chargers would put a very small amount of power into a battery nonstop, constantly charging, hence the term trickle charger. The problem with this is they would begin, they would keep dumping energy into a battery that was at 100%. This is not good. This can overcharge and eventually damage your battery and eventually ruin it. So Steve said, you never, never, never want a trickle charger. Okay. Most modern trickle chargers, and you can check the specs of any trickle charger you buy to determine this, have a sensor because it's not that hard for the battery charger to look at the battery and say, is the battery charged? And they cycle charge. And if the battery's fully charged, they stop. So there's nothing wrong with using a modern trickle charger to keep your battery maintained. Some companies have gotten wise to the fact that some people think this way, and they've, they've used the term battery maintainer. Uh, that's a trickle charger. So you can use this. You just want to make sure that whatever uh, model you particularly choose has the technology to recognize the battery is fully charged 
and stop charging. The reason Tim probably didn't bring it up is Tim's a modern man, and Tim is familiar with, you know, that most of them do this now. I don't know if it, I think it would be difficult to find one that's made today or made in the last five years that doesn't. I'm sure somebody will find one and prove me wrong, but I think you'll have to look harder to find one that doesn't cycle on and off than find one that is always on, you know, that, that does. All right, next up we have a, a, a segment from Doc Bones that I think might actually be a gaping hole in a lot of really well-organized preppers, especially people that have prepper groups uh, plans. Now, we got a medical person. we got a medical person. If the medical person doesn't know everybody and hadn't already done what you're about to hear, uh, it might be this might be a really, really important segment because the first thing a doctor that you go see is concerned about is your medical history. And, yes, this applies during you know acute critical injuries, which are the things we're most concerned about uh, in kind of a longer-term grid-down scenario. And remember, grid-down scenarios are not just... You know, I don't know, Russia launched nuclear missiles at China or something, right? And the whole world's at war. Like, it's not, or just a global pandemic that actually killed. Like, that's not the only way you have a grid-down scenario. You can very, very reasonably have long-term inability to access outside help at a regional level for multiple weeks. And it only takes a day to die. Actually, it only takes a couple seconds to die. So this applies regardless of your mentality as far as your, your prepping and your planning. And again, I think you'll find that it'll, it'll make you think about things you maybe have not thought about before. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. For the family or group medic in long-term survival scenarios, success involves knowing the patient's history. The history allows you to figure out what type of medical issues to expect in an uncertain future and assists you in preparing for injuries and illness. The last thing you want is to be blindsided by some medical problem you should have known about beforehand. It's better to take a person's medical history when you're not in the middle of an emergency that renders the patient less than alert. You don't want to rely on family members or even bystanders to give you possibly erroneous information. It's important to compile as complete a medical history as possible for every person in your group before a disaster occurs. And this way you can help them plan to stay healthy in hard times. For a before they're sick or hurt medical history, consider the acronym MMASH. This stands for medical illnesses, medications, allergies, surgeries, and hospitalizations. You'll want to know about the patient's past and current experiences with chronic conditions, operations, injuries, allergies, and medications, including any side effects. Here's what you ask. What do they consider their general state of health? Excellent, good, fair, poor. What illnesses have they had or, or have? Cancer, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, thyroid, just about anything. Have they been hospitalized for any reason? Did they have an injury or surgical procedure? What type? How long ago? Did they recover fully? Are they taking medications? Note the names, dosages, frequency of any drugs, including any over-the-counter medications, supplements, and herbal remedies. Are they undergoing alternative therapies like chiropractic or acupuncture? For what reason? Are they allergic? To what? What kind of reaction do they have? A rash? Itching? Anaphylactic shock? What made them better? In females, you want to know how many pregnancies they've had, 
What were the outcomes? Healthy baby, miscarriage, vaginal delivery, cesarean section. Do they have regular periods? In older women, have they reached menopause? Do they take hormones? If working with kids, you might not have a lot of past medical history, I hope, but ask parents about any birth defects or deficits in growth and development. Height, weight, and head circumference are standard data from pediatric records. Note any misdevelopmental milestones, significant behavioral changes, and learning issues. Immunization history is also useful. If your people aren't immunized, you better know how to recognize things like measles, diphtheria, and chickenpox. You'll also want to know about family history. A family history consists of information about medical issues in direct blood relatives of the patient. If you're the medic, take advantage of family gatherings to talk about health problems. Collect information about your parents, sisters, brothers, half-sisters, half-brothers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews. You'll want to know about major medical conditions, when they got them, treatments, and what age perhaps a person was when they died. Many times, family members might not know these things. In these cases, you might get information from death certificates, which can reveal issues you never knew your loved ones had. Knowing a patient's family history helps identify a predisposition to developing certain illnesses, which can help the medic make clinical decisions and may even offer opportunities for prevention. For example, if there's a strong family history of diabetes, you can encourage a healthy diet and exercise now to perhaps prevent damage from type 2 issues. Even knowing racial and ethnic backgrounds can help. African American ancestry, for example, is associated with a higher risk of high blood pressure. You'll also want to know a patient's social history. A social history addresses occupational, recreational, social, and even aspects of the patient's personal life that have the potential to be clinically significant. Is there a history of substance abuse? Note alcohol, tobacco, and recreational drug use, including type, amount, and duration, as well as any past treatment or stints at rehab. Are they still drinking, smoking, or using? How much? Daily? For smoking, how many packs a day for how many years? Occupational history is useful in case there's been exposure to hazards, but it also helps to identify skills and experience that a group member has that could be a survival asset. might even give you a clue as to the level of fitness of a person. In the same vein, you should ask about hobbies. If running marathons is one, well, you could probably count on that person handling a long hike. Sexual history is another part of social history. You'll have to decide how far to go with that one, but there are circumstances where it's useful medically to know. You might, for example, want to know if someone has or had syphilis, so you can learn and look for both the early and late signs of the various stages of the disease. Then there is what we call the review of systems. The review of systems is an inventory of current issues with the body systems that haven't been revealed yet in your interview. You can go from head to toe if you're doing a first history, or just go into relevant systems if the patient, for example, is dealing with a urinary problem. A thorough review asks about past and current symptoms and treatments. The systems include constitutional signs and symptoms like fever, weight loss, fatigue, eye symptoms, ears, nose, mouth and throat problems, cardiovascular symptoms, respiratory symptoms, gastrointestinal symptoms, general urinary symptoms, musculoskeletal and joint symptoms, skin problems, neurological symptoms, allergies, hormonal problems, and even mental health. If someone's hearing voices, you probably want to know. You'll find lots of pre-printed medical history forms online that you can use to document all this information you're gathering. Now, one thing, make sure to always maintain strict confidentiality in all encounters. There's nothing that destroys trust in a healthcare provider than loose lips. 
That's a good general medical history that'll let you know as much as possible about what's going on medically with your people before they come to you to be examined for a particular problem. Like I said, this is best done before the world falls apart so that you can refine your medical supplies to meet needs and hopefully nip some problems in the bud. This is Joel Mendy, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. For top quality medical kits, individual supplies, and award-winning educational resources, check out our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Great stuff from Bones. Next question is for Jessica Mills on a through-hike of the Appalachian Trail. This gentleman's made it to New York. I'm pretty sure I know this guy from Instagram, and I think just a few weeks ago he walked past a place that I just posted a picture of my wife, myself, and my son at, And I said, I was here five years before this picture, and this picture is from 15 years ago on my section hike, not through hike of the Appalachian Trail. I think it's probably just based on where he is and the timing of the question uh, and the fact he's a listener, I think he's probably the person that commented on that picture of me that's like 20 years old. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and hear what Jess has to say on maintaining your motivation in that final third because you get tested there. Hey, TS Peers, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question for John. John says, how do you recommend staying motivated in the later stages of a thru-hike? Details, I am currently thru-hiking the Appalachian Trail. I started April 20th, and I'm about 1,400 miles in in New York State. The end is actually kind of in sight, but I've found my motivation waning a bit. I have no desire to quit, but also find myself being vortexed into towns more and more. Don't get me wrong, I have absolutely loved being out here on both the hard days and not-so-hard days, but do you have any pointers or insider tips on keeping up the steam in the later stages of the AT? Shout out to the TSP and Bitcoin Breakout Podcast for keeping me company out here. Also, shout out to Dixie for helping me get started on this journey with her YouTube presence. I've loved being out here. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for the kind words. I'm honored that I helped give you the nudge to get out there on the trail. I think it's a life-changing and uh, unforgettable experience, and I wish everybody could get out and do a through hike because I really think that it it does this perspective shift that um, you can't understand and, until you go out there and experience something like that. But I feel you on the um, podcast because I listened to my fair share of TSP while I was out on trail. Jack kept me company through like my whole Triple Crown adventure. But um, anyway, that that's something that definitely helped me when I was feeling unmotivated was listening to podcasts. That sounds like you're already doing that. Um, also audiobooks. I, uh, used an app and I can't remember the name of it right now, but you can actually use a library card and, um, put in your information and rent books for free. Um, but you would have to already have a library card. Uh, also you can do audible, which is a paid subscription. I wore out some audible, um, while I was through hiking, but I completely understand how you feel At this point, the newness of everything has worn off. You're two-thirds of the way in, so you've had all of your first, your first hitchhiking experience, um, maybe hiking in a thunderstorm or a crazy you know, storm where you thought a tornado might take you away. You've had your first epic trail magic where people cooked for you in the woods. You've probably already done some night hiking. You've camped with people. You've camped alone. You've maybe seen crazy wildlife, etc. And so at some point... 
it's like, all right, there really aren't many firsts to experience anymore. And dang, this is kind of like day in and day out the same routine over and over and basically longing for town and for real food and a bed and a shower. You know, um, it starts to feel like a job, like you're you're working through the week and living for the weekend, you know, that that chance to get to town and um, just uh, relax and, and kick your feet up. And I, I kind of compare it to it's like being in high school. And when you're a senior, you get what they call the senioritis. Um, where you just feel unmotivated. So I wish I could tell you that there was this magic trick for getting that mojo back, but you're really in the part where you just have to put your nose down and grind. Uh, focus on the carrot at the end, what all of this is for. You know, the, they say the journey is the destination and, and for sure that's, um, that's true to some extent, but like the destination, the goal in a through hike is also a very big deal. So try to remember, you know, try to envision like, Hey, that's what I'm out here for. And at some point, you know, it's all about the goal and, and doing what you have to do to get there. Um, but I think trying to shift your perspective is good too. You know, what is life going to be like for you when you finish? Are you going back to work or, you know, are, are you going to be bored with your day to day life once you get back to town? You know, aren't you more free now? And so, you know, maybe you're missing the normalcy of being at home, but I promise you that you're really going to miss the trail once you get home. So, uh, it helped me too to make a list of stuff that I wanted to do when I got home. So I felt like I was still being productive in the home world somewhat. So I made a list of things I wanted to read or research or learn more about places that I missed eating things I wanted to do. And that'll help you, um, once you get off trail with post trail depression too. Um, but yeah, I promise you, you're going to miss the trail when you get done. You'll even miss this part, the grind, maybe not right away, but it will come. So try to realize that and really soak in the end of your journey. And I know that that can be hard, but, um, this part, the grind is what's really going to make the finish line so sweet. So anyway, I'm wishing you the best. I hope I get to see your summit photo when you get done. Uh, happiest of trails to you. And remember no pain, no rain, no main. All right, y'all make sure to get any questions you have into Jack for me. And thank you again, John, for the question and good luck to you. All right. So I'm, I'm going to give my thoughts on this and I don't want it to come off the wrong way. I'm not in any way saying, don't worry about completing the through hike. That's not what I mean. Um, it's important to understand that the point I'm coming from when I did my section hike, I didn't even like, I'm going to start here and get to, to the end. I'm going to summit Catlin or whatever. Like it was, I'm going to hike until I'm done. I got out of the army. I was 21 years old and I, I just didn't know what I wanted and I needed to reboot. So I was, I'm going to just go and when I get far enough, I'm going to be done. But I still think that part of my experience uh, applies here. It, and, and it has to do with the little comment that was made is he feels a little bit more pulled and, and staying longer in town. So along the trail, often hikers will either hitch a ride or you know be close enough to hike into to a, a small town here and there and you know maybe get a hotel room for a night. Take an actual shower, have an actual meal, drink a beer, meet some people. Um, there's two types of time limits that you would be under in this situation. One is climatic 
In other words, it's going to start getting colder in the northeast and you're hiking into the mountains of Maine is where you're headed eventually, and you know this. And you're going to go through Vermont and New Hampshire, and it's some pretty rugged and beautiful parts of the trail that you're about to experience. And there is a climatic limit. So you have to be mindful of if you want to make your, 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 your final summit there in Maine and finish, that you, you, you can do it before it's too cold. So you have to be mindful of that. So that's one. The other one that I could have no idea about would be, you know, maybe you, you took a piece of your life to do this and you have a date by which you have to get there. So don't let what I'm about to say interfere with those time requirements. However, I found that my time in some of the little towns and little places, little inns, little places along the way, some of my best memories that people are important, not just the time alone. And the time that I went and the section that I was on, the trail actually wasn't very busy. People were either already closer to the end or not quite up to it. I was kind of in a gap, and I liked that. I wanted solitary time. I didn't have as many people around me, you little clusters that form and things like that. Um But when I went into little places, and I don't even remember the name of the town, but I remember this one place I, I went and got this little hotel called the Red Sleigh Inn, and it had uh, ponds behind it you could fish, and I had a little collapsible fishing rod, and I fished for it, caught some beautiful rainbow trout. Like, I, would, I wouldn't trade that memory for anything else that happened along the way. Um, some t like, I, I spent about a week where I quit. I quit in New Hampshire near North Conway, and I stayed at a hotel there. I can't even remember the name of it. The guy ended up offering me a job by the time my dad came and picked me up because I damn sure wasn't walking back. And I actually gave consideration into working for this guy and moving there. And so with feeling of being called into town, if it is being called in because you don't want to keep going and you need to keep the motivation up, by all means, keep the motivation up. And if you have committed to getting this done and you have a time limit that has to be met, whether it's climatic or life, then make sure you keep on it. But if you feel that somehow you're detracting from the experience by being with people, don't. Because it it is... It, it makes me think of, uh, of uh, Sam Clemens, you know, Mark Twain, when he said that, that travel was terminal to prejudice and meeting people is as much, and, and not just fellow hikers, because you're all common mindset. Meeting people in these little towns and things along the way is, is incredibly valuable. And I would say not to you, but to others that often think about doing this, one is not judged unless one seeks to be judged when it comes to being a hiker. And it is very possible that one might hike sections of the Appalachian Trail, or the Pacific Rim, or the, the Continental Divide Trail, uh, and, and pick places they want to visit, and maybe not hike the whole, not just do a section of it, maybe actually skip portions of it, and do little section hikes that connect in between certain places one would want to stay, especially like today you have Airbnb and Hip Camp and stuff like that available. And little hostels and little inns and all kinds of things have been developed around the AT to cater to hikers. And if you don't have 
three months or six months of your life to dedicate to something like this, and you have a few weeks, it might be worth approaching that way. And I really never thought about it before until this moment when I heard the beginning of this. I read that and it didn't resonate. So when Jess said it, how, how healing for me the experience of meeting people and talking to people was during that time of my life. And it might be something that someone out there needed to hear today. I hope so. Anyway, next up, we have a question on Comfrey for Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer on plants, of all things. I don't know. What is the deal? Plants? For me? All right, my question is for Nick Ferguson. This is from... Uh, I, Dad Froggy, okay, Dad Froggy, uh, how many, dis that's a nice name, how many dissimilar types of comfrey should one voluntarily introduce to their property? Bocking varieties are often touted as being sterile, they are, they're a sterile hybrid, however, I have heard of them providing pollination to other varieties, and this invokes the memory of the empty promise surrounding calorie pear and the fear of creating Franken-comfrey. Is this a real concern or drum beatings from those that dislike Comfrey's use? I already have one, but have my eye on more. Are there other notable benefits or drawbacks of having Bocking 4, Bocking 14, and Symphytum officinalis, etc., all in the same area? Thanks, Jed. All right, that's Jed Dad Froggy. Well, I'll be totally honest. I don't know if the hybrids have functional pollen. I, I kind of think that they don't. If they do, they can potentially crossbreed with officinalis, but I kind of doubt it. I believe the hybrids are totally sterile, so if I'm right and they are sterile, there's no problem. If I'm wrong, you may end up with some new hybrid types that will be mostly genetically officinalis. Worst case scenario, you end up with a bunch of new types of plants that are great medicine and great protein content for your livestock. Or maybe that should be called best case scenario? I guess it all depends on your perspective. I'm personally a proponent of genetic diversity on your homestead. I say get as many different types of comfrey as you can get. I think I might actually have um, a fish analyst 14 for and a type of comfrey that nobody else does or nobody I've met. And it came from my grandpa who did some sustainable ag consulting over in Germany and the UK um, in uh, all across Europe, um, and specifically in the UK where Lawrence Hills lived. Uh, so I can neither confirm nor deny that my grandfather might have come into possession somehow completely legally brought Comfrey over from the UK using legal importation means uh, certainly uh, this is complete speculation that he might have done so 100% legally and that my comfrey from the farm is a different balking than 4 and 14 it might be it seems like it might be balking 23 so to answer your question how many types all of them all of them the more the merrier get them all growing you'll use them all I like the 4 because it's less spiny, and I like 14 because it's a little better medicinally, supposedly, but I think they're all great, to be honest. 
Um, I will have some available in the next couple years. I'm currently growing up my own stock of comfrey, so I have enough to sell. You'll be able to find them over at rareplantstore.com. And since I brought it up, uh, since some of y'all keep emailing me asking when we're going to have plants available, I don't ship in the fall because they will die. And my fall is very busy. Um, I should have plants listed for sale and available for pre-order around January 1st. And then we always ship uh, starting like middle to end of March. So I hope that answer helps encourage you to be bold and get all the comfries. And Zach, get yourself some comfrey salve for that foot if it's not healed up yet. Dr. Christopher's is fantastic stuff. Jack can testify. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Yeah, I'm with Nick. How much comfrey should I plant? All of it. Plant all the comfrey. Uh, one mitigating circum uh, thing too is that the primary way by which you'll have comfrey reproduce will be by cloning anyway. So if this is something that people get all hairy about with things like squash. Well, if if I plant two uh, winter squashes, then if they cross pollinate, I'll get a Franken squash. Okay, first of all, there's no Franken squash. It's probably going to be something useful. Uh, but second of all, it won't do anything to the first generation. It won't change the plant that's in the ground, and it won't change the, 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 the fruit of the plant. And the same with comfrey. So if you have comfrey A and comfrey B, I don't care if they're balking one and balking 497,000, and they cross-pollinate, it won't change the plants in the ground, and it won't change what the roots will produce if you take cuttings from the roots. They'll produce seed, and that seed, if planted, will then produce some sort of a hybrid. It also makes me think of Sepp Holzer. We went and we did the workshop with him in Montana. God, that has to be 2012, 2013, something like that, a long time ago. And somebody asked him about it. And it, you know, he was going through a translator because he speaks, you know, basically German Austrian. And the uh, student is is speaking, and the translator is pure German, and with you know, and it. Finally, he realizes what this person's asking, and it was a similar question with worrying about cross-pollination. He just waves his hand like, don't even. Plant everything. Nature knows what to do with it. And I think that's good advice from a guy that would know. Anyway, um, so he got three. You got Seb Holzer, Jack Spirico, and Nick Ferguson saying plant all the comfrey. Anyway, moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about this quote that I gave you at the beginning from Albert Einstein and how it applies to being a good teacher. And if you're a good teacher, then you're also a good consultant or a good salesperson or you're good at marketing. And also about how it applies to modern uh, propaganda as it results to people that purport to be experts on television. And, and the difference between explaining something simply ver versus dumbing it down. Okay. So, again, the quote by Einstein was, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I want you to think about the people that they bring on TV to, to be experts about anything they're trying to convince you of. And remember, they always have an agenda when they bring an expert. They already know what side, like when they ask, well, what do you think, Dr. Dickhead? He, they already know that Dr. Dickhead's going to come down on side A of the issue because that's the agenda they have. Right? They've already vetted that. I've been on major media. I'm telling you, they call you up and they know every answer. You're, they ask you 100 questions, and of that 100 questions, when you get actually interviewed, that, that interviewer is going to ask you two or three of them. But they know how you're going to answer them in advance. They're vetted that way on these big shows. So 
that doctor will bloviate and use a bunch of words and say something about National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization and all the experts and all the studies and sound like he's really important and really smart, but it actually won't have anything to do with explaining the answer. And then they'll give you an answer that can be understood by a kindergartner that is basically, you should do this. And they create this illusion that the two things they just spat out were connected because either they don't understand it well enough or they know if you understood it, you wouldn't believe them. You take your pick. And so understanding something simply is not dumbing it down. It is explaining a way in a way that the person you're speaking to, you bring them up to your level but remain simplified enough in your explanation that they can comprehend it when it is information they have not been previously exposed to. So we, we might use some smaller words. We won't use industry jargon. Or if the industry jargon is indeed important to the explanation, we'll explain the meaning of the jargon. And it, another thing it makes me think of is the way that, that scriptwriters try to baffle people with bullshit in TV shows. I made the mistake of watching the old uh, series 24 on Hulu recently, my wife and I, and listening to the, the, the baffling bullshit that comes out with the information technology stuff. You know, like, like well, tell them the multiplex. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, or, or medical shows. Right, where they just like they say, we'll start a central line. That's actually a massively invasive procedure that you don't just randomly do to every single person that comes into an ER. But if you didn't know that, when you heard these impressive terminologies, you'd be like, wow, that's really realistic. No, it's not. And there's so many people in the world that are presenters that instead of being teachers, they're talkers. Now, obviously, all of us that are presenters, we have to talk or you're not going to hear anything. And we're not going to make a lot of sense. I guess we could be painters or something and instruct that way. But if we're going to teach orally, then we have to talk. But you can just talk or you can actually teach. And the reality is the reason you should strive to become a master at teaching the things that you love is you'll be better at them. There are people... And you can tell when you listen to them and they teach a thing that they've taught for 10 years, like in a classroom environment or something. They're no better at it than the day they taught it the first time because they're not actually teaching it. They're, they're narrating. They're talking. And they're either dumbing it down to get the person that they're teaching, air quotes, to be able to fumble through it well enough to get out the other end through a test, Right? Or they're just narrating it and relying on that person to learn for themselves. You might as well just, and I think back, to, I had some good teachers in high school, but most of them, they might as well have just recorded what they had to say one time every day in class and then played it, because they'd have to teach three or four classes, just play it each day, and they could have done that for ten years. One of my friends in high school, my junior year, a guy named Mark, We, we did real good on all of our tests in, in this one teacher's English class because his sister had that teacher for that class seven years ago, and literally nothing had changed. And that teacher didn't explain it simply 
He just simply explained it. What, what explaining something simply means is truly understanding the material. Truly understanding the individual or group you're explaining it to. And building a bridge between their level of knowledge and a new level of knowledge. This is difficult to do if you don't yourself understand the material rather than simply being able to regurgitate it with jargon. It's also difficult to do until you learn to understand the, the true principles of teaching. And it's also, to be fair to teachers, presenters, etc., it is very difficult to do if the audience does not wish to learn. And there's two distinct skills in presenting, teaching, consulting. It's all the same, but there's two distinct skills. One is the conveyance of the knowledge. And two is to be engaging enough to get the student who's not quite there with desire to, to find the desire within themselves, to motivate the student to wish to learn. And I recently listened to a talk show host say, and it was about homeschool, and of course he was against it, and he had a bald head and a big mustache. They know who he was. Um, I believe teaching is a science. And I'm thinking, well, I've seen some teachers that couldn't practice science if it was handed to them in a freaking cup with a freaking bottle of vodka. Okay, um, Or maybe they'd be better at it that way. I don't know. Um, teaching is not a science. Science is an error-detecting process. That's what science is. In spite of everything... See, and that's, that's an example of explaining something simply. That's an example. Science is this really multidisciplinary... No, science is an error-detecting process. That's what it does. We take the scientific method, we detect errors, we correct for them, and we keep doing it till we can get something to work the way we that expected it would or the way that explains what's going on. And then if that result can be replicated by others, then it is verified as being most likely the case. It takes a, lo a lot of verification. It's like a blockchain. You know, one, one confirmation, it's probably there, but we wait for three. And in that confirmation process, can your results be replicated by others If they cannot be, we've detected an error in the process. Either the way you've documented it is wrong, or what you think you did is wrong, or the result you got was an aberration and you missed something. And it can, because if it happened once, it can happen again, but you missed something in your process, so you didn't document it right. Science is an error detecting process, teaching is not an error detecting process. Teaching is the conveyance of knowledge. And if it's good teaching, the conveyance of knowledge to where the student can then teach what they were taught. See, that's again, making it simple to understand without dumbing it down. You should always, as a teacher, as a presenter, as a consultant, as a storyteller, bring people up. And if you think this doesn't apply to you, because I don't know, you're a grandpa, and all you do is sit around and tell children's stories like the ant and the grasshopper, That's exactly what it applies to. We tell children stories like the ant and the grasshopper to bring them up a layer, up a level. It's not an error-detecting process. It's a knowledge conveyance process. It's a memory enhancement process. And it's one of the noblest pursuits of mankind. 
It's probably the most, you know, they say that uh, prostitution is the world's oldest profession. I don't believe that is the case. I believe the world's oldest profession is teaching others. It is a naturally innate human instinct to teach others because this is the survival podcast. And the reason we're doing this topic today, it's a survival topic. If you end up in a situation where you have to rely on others, and those others don't know all the things that are necessary to ensure the survival of the group, the only way to get them there is to teach them, to organize, to realize there may be things you don't know, and to get cross-training, which is cross-teaching. The, 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 the primates of the world teach, do they not? I watch my, right now I'm watching my dog Charlie teach my pup Belle. I teach her the limitations and he teaches her what to do within those limitations. We're not allowed to do these things. We're not supposed to do these things. We don't just bark at people that are let in, but we damn sure bark at the guy on the other side of the gate. The dog is teaching. Teaching is an innate, instinctual thing that we have been convinced by a power elite that realizes its power, that realizes its power, that only special people can do, because they don't want you to have the power. Here's an example of the power in of itself in teaching. A real-world example that I did with my granddaughter. My granddaughter was not hip on learning to read. She didn't want to. Why? Don't really know. doesn't really matter. Nothing I can do about the why not. Only thing I can do is help find the why, because what can we not make a child do? Learn a thing they do not wish to learn. Well, if a five-year-old girl doesn't want to learn something, she's not going to. So Grandpa sat down with her and explained to her that reading was a superpower. This is a complex thing explained in a simple way without talking down to somebody. This is the truth. Reading is a superpower, Tegan. If you know how to read, no, there will never be a thing that you want to know that you cannot know. Nobody will be able to prevent you from knowing it. No one. And if you want to travel somewhere that you can't go to because you don't have the money or the time and somebody wrote about it, you can read about it and you can go there in your head and no one can ever stop you, ever. Reading's a superpower, Tegan. Your brother Braylon has it. Your daddy has it. Your mom has it. Your grandma has it. Your grandpa has it. Now, do you want that superpower, too? She got up off the ground. She was having a fit about it. Ran out to her grandma and said, Grandma, Grandma, I want to learn how to read. Why? Because she saw the motivation as to what it would do for her. Why it would benefit her. Not because I said so. But it was the explanation of something extremely complex at the level a five-year-old would understand. Why? Because I understand it myself. Think about what you understand at that level yourself. Every person in this world that understands anything valuable, anything positive, needs to be teaching. Every Jedi needs a pad one. Go find yours. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Remember, you can always help support my show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I don't have a new item of the day for you, but I'm running the one today that I ran earlier this week. It is the 
um, the Razor Light EDC knife from Outdoor Edge. I'm holding this knife right now. I carry this knife every day. I love this knife. Go read the write-up on it, and you'll see why. This is like the, in my opinion, this is the best everyday carry utility knife for the most people because it works so damn good. It costs so damn little. It's so efficient in what it does. And, man, it lasts a long time. I've had mine now for two years. Uh, I don't remember which four people in this audience when I mentioned this. I just go get it, but thank all four of you. And uh, I remember, again, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I hope everybody has a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Take care, guys. I'll be back with you with another episode on Monday. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you